continue through this letter that Paul has written to the Romans. We're almost done after a year and a half. I can start all over if you want me to. <laughs> Romans chapter 15. Well, the last few Sundays we've talked about uh, where Paul is writing to the church and encouraging them to have unity in the church. You know, for those who are weak in the faith, not to uh, judge those who are stronger in the faith. And those who are stronger in the faith, not to look down on those who are weak in the faith. Uh, and, and he's talking about non-essentials, and, and we have to make sure that we're clear on this, that we are not to divide over secondary issues, over non-essential issues. With that said, essential issues and issues of first importance may divide us, and that's okay. If, if we have those among us that question things like justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Those that question the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, those are issues that, yes, we may be divided over. But this is not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about those, those secondary issues about whether you can eat meat or drink wine and things like this. this is what he's talking about. And uh, so we got down through uh, verse 6 in chapter 15. And then in verse... Uh, Beginning with verse 7, <clears throat> Paul says, Therefore accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. And for the Gentiles to glorify God in His mercy, as it is written, Therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. And again, he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, and him the Gentile hope. Now may the God of hope Fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So here Paul comes back to accepting the person who is weak in the faith by urging the weak and the strong to accept one another. We are to, he says there in verse 7, accept one another. Why? Just as Christ also accepted you to the glory of God. This is why we accept one another to the glory of God. And in verses 8 through 13, Paul then puts the issue, uh, this whole issue in light of eternal redemption. Of the whole salvation story through Christ, God's promises to the Old Testament saints. Uh, they had been fulfilled bringing salvation not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. Now, that's a big deal right there. And we're going to see later why that's a big deal. This, this whole thing between the Jews and the Gentiles. Uh, God's faithfulness to the Jews. Uh, they, they were with the inclusion of the Gentiles. This is a sum up the key theme of the book of Romans. 
Paul had written this letter to the church in Rome that consisted of Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And he, you know, he, he started out the book by pointing out that all have sinned, that all have fallen short of the glory of God, that, that both Jew and Gentile alike are both under sin. And, and he's trying to show them that there must be unity between them and how salvation came to the Jew first and then also to the Gentile. And so God's faithfulness is the theme of the book of Romans, where Paul is talking about how uh, this, this brings closure not only to the weak and the strong dis uh, discussion, but to the entirety of his letter. And so God's word has not failed. Jesus Christ has confirmed it. God's word is true. God's word is faithful. And so Paul is saying God's word has not failed. Christ has confirmed it. And it's important for us as believers to see our petty squabbles in light of the salvation that God has provided for us through Jesus Christ. In light of God's plan of salvation for the believers in Rome... Uh, this, this reminder about God's eternal plan of having a people for himself from among the nations should have made it inconceivable to divide over matters of indifference. I told you the story last week about the two, that, the, the two deacons that got in a fight over the, the piano and the, and the uh, organ. Listen, we laugh about that, but I want to tell you something, folks, how that must have grieved the heart of God. And not only that, it was a small community like this where that happened. Everybody in town knew about it. That church became a laughing stock. Can you imagine one of those deacons, and everybody in the town knew who they were, can you imagine one of those deacons uh, going up to somebody, hey, let me tell you about the love of Christ. Well, now, aren't you the one that got in a fist fight over the piano? Think that's going to work? No. So Paul says that we need to look at, at, at all of these uh, in, in light of God's plan of salvation. Um, and Paul picks up uh, this theme of hope there in verse 13 with another prayer petition to the God of hope. Go back to verse uh, set, to verse 5. <clears throat> at the end of ver at verse 5 and 6, Paul says, Now may the God of perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that you with one accord and may with one voice do what? Glorify God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you up with all joy and peace and believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul asked God to fill the Christians in Rome with all joy and peace and believing. <clears throat> you know, it's something you'll find very interesting, folks. Go through the entirety of the New Testament. Matthew through Revelation. Actually, you can just go through the whole Bible. Find every instance you can of someone praying, especially praying for other people. And you will find we have no idea what we're doing. Because our prayers are nothing like theirs. 
When was the last time you prayed for somebody and say, Lord, I pray that you would fill them with joy and peace and believing so that they will abound in hope. Have you ever prayed that for somebody? Have you ever prayed and said, God, I pray uh, that you are the God of perseverance and encouragement, and I pray you would, you, that you would grant us to all be of one mind to the, and one voice to the glorifying of God. Have we ever prayed anything like that? No. We should be, but we don't. And Paul here is praying this. Uh, he, if Christian hope permeates the lives of both the weak and the strong, Here's what it will do. It will transform our relationships. It will transform our relationships and it will make us more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Isn't that our goal? We must note though that Paul's appeal to unity in the church does not rest on some modern view of tolerance. Listen, I want to tell you something, folks. You may not know this, but God is the most intolerant being in the universe. God never has, never will, in any shape, form, or fashion ever be tolerant of even the smallest of sins. So Paul's appeal here is not to the unity of our church that, that rests on some view of tolerance, but on the fact that Jesus Christ has come for a people from many backgrounds to trust in Him. You know, here, here's what it comes down to. Paul says, whether you're weak in the faith or strong in the faith, no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, this person over here, you were saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And this guy over here, well, he was saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And they were both dead prior to that. So you see what he's saying here? He's saying you both were dead. You both were saved the same way. So accept one another. Love one another. That's how we're to do. And we do it for the sake of Christ. Verse 14 through 33 here Look at verse 14 and 15. Paul says, But I myself am also convinced about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, having been filled with all knowledge, and being able to admonish one another. But I have written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me by God." As Paul describes his special calling, his past travels, his future plans... We find several theological and practical directives proclaiming the gospel to the lost. Now, remember, God has saved us. We didn't deserve it. We did not merit it. God chose to save a people out of this world for His own, of His own good pleasure. He didn't look and say, well, these are better than those, so I'm going to choose thee. No, he didn't do that. He chose us all. We were all dead in our trespasses and sins. And Paul says, we've been saved. We've been redeemed by Jesus Christ, by His grace. Now, what are we going to do? Why didn't God, when He saved us, why didn't He just take us on to heaven? Why did He leave us here? 
You ever wonder that? Why do why why this this journey through sanctification and holiness when God could have just instantly made us holy, brought us into his presence? But he didn't do that. When Jesus Christ ascended back into heaven, he said to those disciples standing there, he said, Listen to me. Go into the world. And make converts of people. That's not what he said. He said go into the world. And make disciples. There's a difference. We're not called to make converts. I can't save anybody. You can't save anybody. That's, that's the job of the Holy Spirit. But you and I are called to go and make disciples. We are called to, to proclaim the gospel in all of the world. And so Paul here, he describes this and, and he says that there are uh, certain aspects that we must meet in order to proclaim the message of the gospel to those that are lost. Paul identifies three marks of a healthy church. By the way, did you know... That you are required, your attendance is required in God's house with God's people as often as possible. Now, I've often wondered what it must be like to have church like they had in the New Testament, in the, in, in the early church. Or to have church like they do in Iran or in China. Or, you know what they do? They have it every day. They gather together every day. Y'all want to do that? We'll start meeting here every day at 10 o'clock in the morning. I don't see anybody shaking their heads. Well, I mean, you are, but it's like this. <laughs> Listen, we, we, there, Paul identifies three marks of a healthy church. There's goodness, there's knowledge, and there's the ability to instruct one another. <clears throat> Look what he says there in verse 14. But I myself am also convinced about you, my brothers, that yourselves are full of goodness having been filled with all knowledge and being able to admonish one another, to teach one another. The church in Rome was a theologically discerning people. And, and no church is perfect, okay? So don't, don't, don't think that. I, I will promise you, if you come into this church looking for something wrong, you will find it. You'll find many things. There is no perfect church. Charles Spurgeon told a young lady one time, she said, I'm looking for the perfect church. And he says, well, if you find it, don't join and mess it up. No church is perfect, but churches are that, that are pursuing goodness and knowledge and admonishing one another in the word. These are the churches that Paul would command. You know, if you read through the book of Revelation, the seven churches that Jesus instructed John to send the letters to, there's a problem with every one of them. There's only one church that didn't get a, 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 a condemnation. <clears throat> but the point is, the ones that did get condemnations, they were still his church. And he, if they weren't, then he wouldn't have been calling on them to repent and come back. You know, uh, it, the, to that one church there in, in Revelation 3.20 when he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You know, we often use that verse, I've used that verse before, uh, of saying, that's Jesus standing at the door of your heart and knocking on it. That's not what that verse means. That's Jesus standing at the door of a church. 
Now, here's the thing. Think about this. We're in here. We're singing, oh, what a wonderful, merciful Savior. We're preaching the Word of God, and I'm reading this, and I'm, I, I, I'm, we're reading God's Word, and I'm preaching God's Word, and we hear a knock at the door, and we look out there, and there stands Jesus. Does anybody see the problem with that? If He's out there trying to get in, while we're in here doing all this stuff, you know what all this stuff means? It means nothing. But He is here with us. He is here. And so Paul says that, that we are to, 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 be, to admonish one another and, uh, with the Word of God. And, and those of a healthy, gospel-centered church will not only bless one another, but we will have a desire. And this is what this comes down to. You know, the, the title of this message is A Friend of Sinners. They said that, that's what they called Jesus. And they meant it as a derogatory term. He wore it like a badge of honor. Are we friends of sinners? Are we? When was the last time you sat down with somebody who's lost and shared the gospel with them? When was the last time you proclaimed the, the truth and stood upon the truth of God's word in the midst of a godless world? Because you want to see the lost come to Christ. This is where Paul is talking here. He, he's, he's, saying, he, he's talking about where, where he's going and what he's doing and how the, uh, the, the church, he needs their help in doing this. We're going to get to But we are called to proclaim the message of the gospel. We are not called... <clears throat> well, you've heard me say this many times. Our purpose here is not to bring people to church. Our purpose is to bring people to Christ. And let me tell you, that is not the same thing. Bringing people to church and bringing people to Christ are two completely different things. I, I, I can guarantee you, I can get with Tim, we can come up with all kinds of things that will probably fill these pews up with people. We can promise them this and promise them that. We can change the music. We can, I can change how I preach and, and, and they'll come and all this. And you know what we're going to have? Then we're going to have a church where he probably stands outside saying, hey, can I get back in? So it's not about bringing people to church. It's about bringing people to Christ. Look at verse 16. Paul says, For me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as, priest, as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, having been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not be bold to speak of anything except what Christ has brought about through me, leading to the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. Now notice that Paul says there, he says, I'm boasting... But I'm boasting in him. I'm boasting in what he's done. He said, I'm presenting the Gentiles. He said, but it's the Holy Spirit who sanctified them. It's the Holy Spirit who does this. So Paul's language carries the idea of, of performing holy duties unto God as a priest. Did y'all know that Paul was a priest? Now listen, when Paul uses the word priest here, when we use the word, the Bible uses the word priest, it's not talking about the priest that you see in a Roman Catholic church. 
the, I, well, I'm just going to tell you, those men are unbiblical from, to the core. And that's not what Paul's talking about here because Peter tells us that all of us are priests. We are a kingdom of priests. And Paul saw his ministry as that of a priest offering sacred worship to God. What about you? What about you? Do you see uh, the work that God has given you to do? Do you see that as a priest offering sacred worship to God? When you sit here in a pew and you sing the songs, do you see that as a worship to God? Or do you just say, oh man, I love this song. I'm glad we picked this song. Isn't that a great song? Oh, I've been singing this song all my life. I, I haven't heard this in years. Or maybe there's some that sits there and says, I don't like this kind of music. I wish we could do something else. When what we do is we sing and say, God, this is for you. Lord, this is for you. When we sit and we hear the Word of God preached and taught. And you look up here and you say, Preacher, tell me about Jesus. Don't tell me about social issues. Don't tell me about what you think about what's going on in the world. Tell me what the Word of God says. Because that's where I worship God. That's what we must do. And Paul saw this. So, so what about us? We are to live out our faith, Paul said, as living sacrifices. Now here's the, here's the thing about a living sacrifice. You take a living sacrifice, you put it up on the altar, and it's going to get up. You know why? Because it's a living sacrifice. You take a dead sacrifice, it's going to stay there. But Paul says we are living sacrifices. I am to willingly, consciously present myself to God as a living sacrifice. Saying, Lord, here I am. You know, when Isaiah stood before the throne of God and he saw his sin and after, after seeing the glory of God, and he said, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. And the angel took the tongs and touched his lips and he says, I have made you clean. You know what God says next? He says, now who's going to go for me? Who can I send? Isaiah said, here am I. What made him say, here am I? By the way, you know there's a difference in saying, here I am, and here am I. To say, here I am, gives the impression of, hey, I'm standing right here. But to say, here am I, means, use me. Use me. And God, you know what God did? He used him. He sent Isaiah out. But Isaiah presented himself as a living sacrifice. And, and, and he, he offered himself up as, as a, uh, an act of worship, an offering of worship. He offered himself to God. Are we willing to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice? Now think about that word, sacrifice. That means it's going to cost you something. But actually, that's not true. To follow Jesus Christ, to be a true disciple and follower of Jesus Christ will not cost you something. It will cost you everything, including your life. 
When Jesus told the crowd that, you know what they did? They left. They left. Only we need to be like Peter. When Jesus said, are you going to go too? Say, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. We are to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. Look at verse 15. Again, he says, but I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given to me by God. For me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest of the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, having been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not be bold to speak of anything except what Christ has brought through about through me, leading to the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed in the power of signs and wonders and the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and all around us, as far as Elycrium, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Faithfulness is the result of divine enablement. Now here's something we need to understand. I can stand up here and I can preach for two hours. I can preach for five minutes. But it doesn't matter. All I can do is say words. That's all I can do. Only the Spirit of God can impart truth. As a church, we can come up with all kinds of programs and reach out to those that are lost and reach out and help support missionaries and do all these things. But if we're not doing it through the power of God, then we're doing it for nothing. Paul says that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are working through Him. A beautiful Trinitarian enablement. The, our work is a Trinitarian work. You know, one of the most beautiful things I ever studied and come to learn about was the Trinitarian work in salvation. I mean, it's wonderful how God the Father chose us before the foundation of the world. And how God the Son came and took upon Himself our sin and bought our redemption. And how God the Holy Spirit comes and imparts that, that, that redemption to our lives. Making us holy, making us like God. And so Paul says that we need to understand that we can do nothing without the, the, the work of God's Spirit. As I said, I can speak words, but only the Spirit of God can impart truth. Let us learn the importance of humble reliance upon God. This is what Paul is saying. After everything he said through the book of Romans, and, and he has said some things that us to, 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 to bow our heads in shame. He said some things that's caused us to lift our voices in praise. And Paul comes to the end of the letter and he says, well, let me tell you something. It's not about me. I didn't do any of this. I will boast in nothing except what Christ has done through me. What about us? What are we boasting about? Are we boasting saying, you know, man, what a great preacher I am. Aren't y'all lucky? Y'all know I don't really think that, right? Okay. <laughs> but that's what I'm saying. Paul is saying <clears throat> we must 
Learn the importance of humble reliance upon God and that ministry, whatever your ministry is. And by the way, everyone here has a ministry. But it's not about us. It's about the glory of God. Again, we go back to that, that misconception we have about salvation. Salvation is not about me. Salvation is about the glory of God. Everything is about the glory of God. And when I stand up here and I preach and say, God, glorify yourself through me this morning. When you sing and you say, God, glorify yourself through my music this morning. That's the right attitude we have to have. And say, uh, God, please work through us and teach us to be humbly reliant upon you. Look at verse 20. He says, and in this way, I make it my ambition to proclaim the gospel. Not where Christ is already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, they who had no declaration of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. This is what John Piper calls holy ambition. It is to proclaim the gospel, Paul says, where he's never been heard before. Now let me tell you something, folks. Some will build on another man's foundation, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Paul, all Paul's saying is, my heart's desire is this, that God will send me where he's never been heard before and allow me to proclaim the message of the gospel. But I want to tell you something, folks. We, we look around us and, you know, we, we, we proclaim... I'm trying to say this without laughing. We proclaim America a Christian nation. She is not and never has been, by the way. Never will be, by the way. But here's the thing. There are people across the street over here that have never heard the gospel. Now, they may have heard about Jesus. They may know about church, but they don't know the gospel. And we have opportunity to go and proclaim it to them. And that's what Paul, look, look what he says there, <clears throat> verse uh, 20. And in this way, I make it my ambition to do what? To proclaim the gospel. To proclaim the gospel. I will never forget, years ago, this older pastor I knew in Plano, he called me and asked me if I would... Uh, meet him at a place in Plano to, to have lunch. He just wanted to have lunch with me. I was new in the ministry and, and, and he was a big influence on me and helped me. But I remember sitting there and as we were being waited on by the waitress, the waitress brought our drinks and she took our order and she brought our food. And when she brought our food and she was about to leave and he grabbed her by the arm and he said, hang on a minute. He said, you know, he said, we're about to pray over our food. Is there something we can pray for you about? He said, do you know Jesus Christ? And she got all red faced and she was embarrassed and tried to get away from him. But do you see what he was doing? He didn't care. He didn't care who saw him. He didn't care who knew. He didn't care if it embarrassed her. Because her embarrassment to him was nothing compared to her eternal damnation. He didn't care whether she liked him or not. Now I'll tell you what happened. The young lady started to cry. And she said, you remind me of my grandfather. He was a preacher. 
And then she sat down right there with us. And I mean, he talked to her like he'd known her all his life. And he, he just presented the gospel to that. I don't know whatever happened with her. But my point is this. Do we have an ambition that no matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, no matter what setting it is, if we know or unsure whether they know the gospel, do we tell them? Do we tell them the gospel? Now, I'm not talking about beating somebody over the head with a Bible. I've had that done to me when I was lost. I'm talking about speaking the truth in love. And Paul says, this is what he's doing. He had a passion for the gospel and a heart for the people. And this is what we said. Do you have a passion to see other people saved? Do you have a passion in your heart for them? Paul did. Look at verse 9 again. I'm sorry, verse 19. <clears throat> he says, In the power of signs and wonders, and the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and all around as far as Elycrium, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And in this way I make it my ambition to proclaim the gospel, not where Christ is already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, they who have no declaration of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. For this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you, but now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have, have had it for many years a longing to come to you, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope passing through to see you and to be helpful on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while." Paul talks about the, the support for the work of the church because Paul had been about the work of evangelism and church planning and he, he'd not been able to get to Rome like he wanted to. And there in verse 24, he appeals to the church in Rome to assist him in his journey. Uh, now, now, he calls on them to assist. You need to, you need to support, Paul says, the church. Now, he's not just talking about money. What about your time? What about your gifts and your talents that God has given to you? And folks, let me tell you something. Okay, y'all listening to me? I'm fixing to make somebody mad. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I'll tell you this in love. If you're a member of a church, you need to be there as much as possible. Not just be there, but be involved. God has gifted you. And God has placed you. I, I am a firm believer that if you are a member of this chapel, you are a member by the decree of God himself. He brought you here for a purpose. And that purpose is that you might serve him in this capacity, uh, in the capacity of this chapel. And, and I want to tell you, you show me a church that has a, a people who, who belong to that church, who are dedicated to that, to the Lord through that church. I don't want to say dedicated to the church. I want to say dedicated to the Lord through the church. Because I know a lot of people that are dedicated to the church that couldn't care anything about the Lord. It's just that simple. But listen, we, Paul says to these uh, believers there in Rome, he says, look, he said, I will get there to see you. And he said, I can't wait, he said, because I need to be ministered to by you. I need to minister to you in this. <clears throat> and so uh, the, the, this portion that, he read, that we read here, it underscores the importance of the local church. 
We are here in this place, this church. What year was this church? 1964? Do you know why this church came into being in 1964? Because God said so. Do you know why that church is over there? Because God said so. Now, we may not understand everything, but the point is we need to support the church. We need, and, and we as a church, a local church, we must support the work of evangelism. And when I say evangelism, I'm not just talking about some missionary over in another country. I'm talking about your neighbor that lives next door to you. I'm talking about the girl that works up here at the dollar store. The man that works up here at the gas station. Do we proclaim the message? Paul says that, that we need to support the work of the church and, and, and that we need to be active in it. We must be active. Verse 25. He says, but now I'm going to Jerusalem to serve the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to share with the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so. And they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister them to them also in material things. Now Paul here just gets down to where, uh, as Vernon McGee used to say, the rubber meets the road. Before coming to Rome, Paul is going to go to Jerusalem and he's going there to aid the poor saints that are in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, let, let me read this to you. Over here in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 11, <clears throat> verse 28 and 29 says, And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and, and indicated by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine in all through the world. And this took place in the region of Claudius. And as any of the disciples had means... Each of them determined to send a contribution for the service of the brothers living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Now, you all know who Saul is, right? That's Paul. <clears throat> we often send money to support a missionary, an organization in some part of the world that is ministering the gospel to people, and we do it to support them. But have you ever thought about doing what they were doing right here? That knowing that there's a church in China somewhere right now, and those people don't know if they're going to eat tomorrow or not. And finding out how, and sending money to them and say, hey, here, let us help you buy food. You ever thought of that's what they were doing here? Now, they had to have somebody take it to them. And since I don't fly, it's going to have to be one of y'all. Well, I promise you, if God directed me, I'd get on that plane. Reluctantly, but I would get on that plane. But you see, it's an act of mercy. Paul said, oh, everything, go back again. Go back with me to chapter 12. 
Therefore, I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And you know what that leads to? That leads to giving and supporting the work of the ministry. Because you see, I have when, when you are a living sacrifice, and you are what Paul says, Paul says, a slave of Jesus Christ. Remember what we said last time? What rights does a slave have? None. What does a slave possess? Nothing. Have you ever thought about if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you think about every cent you have, no matter where it is, in your pocket, in your bank, in your wherever, that's not yours. You ever thought about that? It's not yours. It's God's. You know, I had a lady that uh, where we used to go to the place we used to go to church and she, I was talking to her a while back, and she said, uh, "She said, well, how often? She, she's a Baptist, Southern Baptist, so you know they do this quite regularly." She said, "How often do y'all have business meetings?" And I said, I, I smiled, and I said, "Once a year." And I thought the lady was going to faint because they do it every month. And she said, "Oh no, I want to know where my money's going." And I said, you don't have any money. She said, no, that's my money. I said, no, it's not your money. And until you figure that out, you're never going to get past this. Paul says, a gospel-centered church shows mercy. In Romans, the Gentiles, Paul says, they had, a, they, they had enjoyed the spiritual aspects of, that the Jews did. They were both saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And he said, how can you do that and not also share with the material things? And so they were doing this. And, and he said, you know, it shows that they were the, the Gentiles. You know, this had to be a very humbling thing for the Jews in Jerusalem. When Paul came and presented to them this gift and says, we know you're poor, we know you're hungry, Here's some, here is a gift from the Gentiles in Rome. And the Jews probably went, oh, wait a minute, what? <laughs> and Paul said, take it, it's yours. And they were reluctant. And we're going to see what Paul says. Uh, <clears throat> look in verse 30. Now I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find rest in your company. Now may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Finally, Paul asked the Roman church to be in prayer for him. Can I tell you something? I don't know if you do this. If you do, I cannot thank you enough. If you don't, I'm begging you, please. Pray for me as a pastor. Do you know any other pastors? Pray for them too. Do you know any elders? Pray for them. Any deacons? Pray for them. 
Anybody in a position of leadership in a church needs to be prayed for regularly. And Paul asks this. He, he prays for those doing the work of the ministry, those who are pastors, those who are evangelists, those who are missionaries. And Paul speaks of two dangers that he faced, one from without and one from within. And by the way, I want to tell you, I have found that the ones from within are the most dangerous and the most prevalent. But Paul says that many Jews, see, he's going to Judea. And in Judea, Paul's a wanted man. I mean, they have posters up on the wall that says, wanted, dead, or alive. Preferably dead. Because they hated the Apostle Paul. They saw him as a traitor. He had turned against the Jewish faith and, and following what they called the way. Following this, this ridiculous story about a man being risen from the dead. And so they wanted Paul dead. And Paul says, look, I need you to pray for me. I need you to pray that, that, that uh, when I get there that God will protect me from these people. And you see, the believers in Judea, he knew that they may not accept the gift from the Gentile believers. And Paul says, pray that they will accept what I have to give to them. So there were two prayers. One, to be spared persecution from the outside. And two, for insiders to receive their ministry. I, I remember hearing John MacArthur say this one time. And I, I, I know now what he means. He said, ever crossed my mind leaving seminary that the biggest obstacles I would face to the proclamation of the true gospel were church members. And I found that to be true. But it shouldn't surprise us because of all the people that should have known and accepted who Jesus was, it should have been the religious people. But guess who hated him more than anybody? It was the religious people. So Paul here, he says, you know, pray. And when we need to pray for one another. When I say pray for me, I mean pray for me. But you know what? I need to pray for you as well. And I need to pray for the same things. We need to pray for one another. And so Paul here, he says, pray for me that, that, this, that God will use me in this. Here in Romans 15, verses 14 through 33, we find the missional heartbeat of the letter. Where you have a gospel as big as the gospel in Romans, you want to take it to the world. You want to take it to the world. And I love what Paul says in Romans 1.16. He says, and, and I wonder, can you say the same thing? For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For I know, Paul says, it is the power of God unto salvation. To who? To the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Are you ashamed? Do you know this morning that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation? You know how there's only one way you can know that? When you have experienced it. Have you experienced that this morning? Do you know this morning that God... Uh, that, that there's power in the gospel because you have experienced that power. And I want to tell you folks, if Christ has forgiven your sin, made you a new creature, given you His Holy Spirit, then we are compelled, as Paul was, by the grace of God to obey His command. Let me read His command. 
Go therefore. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's our command given to us by our Lord. That's the last thing he said to us before he left earth and ascended back to the throne in heaven. He said, go, preach the gospel, make disciples, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. Do we do that? Are we doing that? We have this idea that going out and proclaiming the gospel and teaching the nations about Christ, that's the work of those that God has gifted as missionaries or evangelists, but let me read what Jesus said again. All of you who have this gift, go therefore and make disciples. Is that what it says? <clears throat> Let's go back up to verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when he saw them, they worshipped him. But some doubted, and Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. All authority. Then he said, Go therefore and make disciples. Teach them, baptize them. He has all authority. And you and I who belong to Christ... Paul, here in the book of Romans, his heart as a missionary, his heart for those who are lost, and his heart for those who are saved is made clear to us. He says, look, I I'm, I'm, can't wait to get there and see you. He'd never met the believers in Rome. You know, I find that fascinating, that the book of Romans, okay, now this is just me, and if you don't believe this way, that's fine, you can be wrong. The book of Romans is the greatest book in the Bible. It is. It has everything in it. You can find in the book of Romans, you can find almost everything you can find in every other book. Somewhere. But Paul wrote that letter to people he had never even met. And he loves them. You know, there are believers that we'll never meet, not in this life, not here on earth. But do we love them? Do we love them? Paul's, Paul had a heart for those who were lost. He had a, part, a heart for those who, were his, who belonged to part of the family. Listen, folks, do you and I love one another the way that Jesus has loved us? Do you love me? That's where you shake your head, yes. I love you. I mean, seriously, from the bottom of my heart, I do. And Paul says we must do that. But you see, it's kind of a I can't help it, but I can help it thing. You know what I mean? I can't help but love you because you're in Christ like I am. But I can help it because I love you because I want to love you. And that's what Paul shows us. And so here in Romans 15, Paul, uh, he, he ends this right here. Saying, now may the God of peace be with you all. <clears throat> and, it, and it's almost like, you know, if, if you read the book of 1 Corinthians or the book of Galatians, you can almost sense the anger in Paul's voice. 
You know, the church in Corinth had open sin they weren't dealing with, and Paul was angry about it. The church in Galatia were dealing with false teachers, and they were beginning to follow them, and you can almost hear Paul's anger in that. But here, we hear Paul's tears. But not tears of sadness, tears of joy, tears of love. And you and I, we, we look at this and, and, and we, we look at everything he's saying here. He said, here's my ministry plans and here's what I need from you as the church. Pray for me. Support me. But he said, do it because of Christ and what he's done for you. Has Christ done anything for you? Has he saved you? Do you realize, you know, you know that's, a, that's another thing that, uh, you all know what easy believism is, right? You know, come down the aisle, say a prayer, get baptized, you're saved, don't worry about it. That's easy believism. That's, that's taught in churches all across our country. It's not biblical, but it's taught. But listen, when we understand that I'm dead in my trespass and sins. There's nothing I can do. And God in His mercy reached down, picked me up, gave me life, gave me the faith to believe, gave me grace to live. How could my life do anything but be lived to please and praise Him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you today, God, for your mercy and grace. We thank you for this beautiful letter that we have gone through here in Romans. Father, help us to love one another as you've loved us. Help us to pray for one another. Lord, help us to recognize the importance of presenting ourselves to you as a living sacrifice. Lord, that we might live a life that is pleasing to you. May we boast in nothing but what Christ has done through us and what He continues to do and what He has promised to do. Thank You, Heavenly Father, for Jesus. Thank You that You have forgiven us. And Father, may we be faithful. May we be filled with Your Spirit that we might be bold to proclaim the message of the Gospel to those that are lost and dying. To Your glory. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.